0: Westmount, mount let's continue that heart of worship take your copy of god's word turn in it with me to romans 8 romans 8 if you're visiting with us another welcome to you and if you need a bible or a copy of god's word just look in the rack in front of you you'll see one there please take one follow along with us turn to the book of romans and turn to chapter 8 in it As you're settling in there, just a reminder that last week we opened this central chapter in the letter. And really, we commented not just a central chapter in the letter, but a central chapter in God's Word. Yes, this, as we said, was a mountaintop arrival after our climb in Romans 1 through 7. And we noted... That this is the way one should access Romans 8 by way of Romans 1 through 7. We commented on that. Riches, remember, are discovered in mind no other way in this chapter. There's no shortcuts. We don't cherry-pick God's Word. We work through verse by verse and extract the gems. And only then do we see rightly, understand fully, and gain comprehensively. Again, Westmount, as mentioned last week, we do not hurry, especially in chapters like this. We can't do that. We've worked our way together through this letter. Now let us, together, Westmount, reap the fruit. Recall with me, we are in the middle of a section, look at it, where Paul has turned to our sanctification. This is really the middle section of Romans here, where he turns to our sanctification after, remember, the opening five chapters outlying justification's need, and our fallen nature, our nature in Adam, of course, warranted that if we are to dwell eternally with God, we need justification. And then justification's source in Christ, in Christ. Paul logically steers then, after those opening chapters, that theological truth, he steers to matters flowing out of our new position in Christ. And that is how salvation, how justification is lived out. And we call that sanctification. Being progressively set apart. Note the motion. Note the motion. And not just set apart, but set apart for full devotion onto the Lord. Full devotion. and In fact, we've seen that language already. And oftentimes we bristle against it in Romans. It means that we're slaves to him. And that's Holiness. Life set apart but fully devoted unto him. The process of our ongoing conformity to Christ, this is now the Apostle Paul's focus here and now. In chapter 6, we looked at the ownership transfer. Remember, from slave to sin to slave to righteousness. In chapter 7, we looked at the struggle. Out of Adam, but still harboring a piece of Adam. And last week, as we opened up chapter 8, we looked at sanctification's foundation, and you know it, Christ. The reality of Christ bookends this chapter, remember it opens up chapter 1, verse 1, through Christ, and it closes it in verse 9 also through Christ. And not just Christ theoretically, but listen, Christ practically and positionally. Believer, you are not just associated with Christ. Someone who happens to talk Christ and be interested at times in the things of Christ. Believer, you are in Christ. You're in Him. That's it. That is the realm of your identity and being. Now, this is transformative. This is everything. It's no longer Adam or sin. Praise God. Now you, li- you are and you live in Christ. The governing truth of life in Christ is found in Romans 8 verse 1. Look at it again. Can never ever look at this enough and say it enough. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Last week we studied that profound reality that in Christ there is no condemnation because, and we don't want to miss this, because Christ took on that condemnation. He bore what we earned and we deserve. And that was the exchange. When he said, as Bill led us this morning, when he said it is finished, it's because he bore our condemnation and paid the price for it, thus it is finished. And our condemnation, here it is, for Christ's righteousness, the great exchange. Christ's righteousness was not just part of a valid atonement for our sin, but Christ's righteousness is the fuel, yes, the very foundation for our living out salvation. Believer, that means that in Christ you not only are not guilty, but in Christ, Christian, you can live out that not guilty. The means of that is found in verse 4. Look at it with me. Remember this. In order, purpose, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Can't have an exchange without that. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There it is. Christian, you must see that. That you now walk, look at it again, according to the Spirit. That is your living That's your minute by minute. Thus, Paul sets up another layer of groundwork pertaining to our sanctification. That's what he's doing progressively in this chapter. In verses 1 to 4, we saw the bedrock that is Christ, life in Christ, location and position in him, Christian. Now, in verses 5 to 11, we'll see the next strata that flows from Christ, and of course, it's the Spirit. The Spirit, yes, the Holy Spirit, which is the means of And the engine for spirit living. Beloved, life in the spirit is only found in and flowing out of life in Christ. You cannot have, listen, you cannot have life in the spirit unless you are first found in Christ. This is a principle woven in the scriptures throughout it. This is the pattern we see from the very first disciples called at Christ's first coming. In fact to help us get going this morning turn to John 14. This is the pattern Christ giving way to the spirit, Christ giving way to the spirit. Of course we already reflected on the Lord's table this morning, well this is in fact the first Lord's table if you will, the night before Christ was betrayed and he is going. Look at chapter 14 verse 1 and omniscient Christ looks at his disciples around this table On this night before he'd be crucified. And he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, and where I am, you may be also. In other words, and you know this, Christian, the context of this supper is Christ leaving, Christ going. That's the point. He is leaving, he is going. But he's not just leaving and going and leaving them. Look what he says in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even, look at this the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. And this note the language here you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Not interesting. I'm going, Christ says but I'm going and I'm leaving you with the Helper. Of course, we know that to be the Holy Spirit. the end of verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 26, he says, but when the Helper comes, so that is Helper coming, yet to come, who I will send to you from the Father, and listen, the Spirit of truth, this is the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And of course, with the disciples, he did just that. Then of course, look in chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage. Don't let your heart be troubled, because it's to your advantage that I go away. Why, Jesus? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. All we need to grab here, friends, there's so much theology always in the upper room discourse, but here it is. Christ called, right? He called his disciples, instructs them, teaches them, and leaves them with the Spirit. Now, these are, of course, the first disciples. A little different for them, but the pattern is true for us as well. Christ calls us and leaves us with his Spirit. First, again, disciples are called by Christ, found in Christ. Then they're left with the Holy Spirit. So key. That's the pattern. Now, back to Romans. That is the pattern. And it is still that pattern today. Hence, this is what the Apostle's taking us through. This is life in Christ. It's always been that way. It is that way, Rome. And it is this way today, Peterborough, Westmount. For Christians, for Christians coming, following Christ, it is still this way today. Hence, this is life in Christ. Life in Christ is life in the Spirit. Let's pick it up in verse 5 and just continue from where we were last time. Let's just continue with Paul's argument here. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But, contrast, those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let us pray. Our Lord in heaven, God, those words are words of life, that indeed, Father, we are in one of two places, and I pray as we mind these words today, you'd give us eyes to see and Minds to understand and hearts to receive so that we can live out these truths and give you glory in them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, one final, important, overarching opening comment before we study these verses. And it is actually more important than you may realize at first. Uh, It's a very important interpretive comment as we come to a text like this. And these verses are making very plain statements of fact. In fact, as you looked at them, you probably realized, right, that there's a contrast. You see the contrast, it's obvious. But remember here now what Paul is doing. This is just a plain statement of fact. Paul is contrasting the life of the believer and the life of the unbeliever. Thus, what is not going on here, and this is important, is a rally or a charge to live rightly. That's not what's going on in this text. Dave read for us Galatians 5 this morning, which is that. That is the charge to walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh or in the power of the Spirit. Chapter 7 of this same book, Paul's already talked about the struggle. Here, Paul has moved on to a very foundational truth of our sanctification, and it's just much more plain and simple. This is simply a matter of identification. That's what Paul is doing here. This is ID. ID sanctification thus is possible because of this, is what the apostle is going to say. And this is our first point, spirit identity. This is the point, spirit identity. Back to verse 5. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Do you see that so plain there? Contrasting the two. The first thing, though, we must immediately note here, look at it with me, in verse 5, is the order of events. Look carefully. Let's read carefully. Paul does not say, for those who set their minds on the things of the flesh live according to the flesh, does he? He doesn't say that. Or he doesn't say, those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit live according to the Spirit. And this is where we have to be careful. That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, the apostle is actually saying the opposite of that. Now listen, beloved, as we live day to day, that may be true. Think rightly, and thus you will act rightly. I mean, it's true. Actions can, and actions often do, flow from thinking. So we're not blowing that up. That may be true, but that's not what this text is teaching. That's not the point that Paul is making here, or this passage in context. Listen, to the straying saints in Galatia, Galatians 3.1, that are trying to be perfected by the flesh, Yes. That's the exhortation to the Galatian churches. But not to the Roman churches where they're just simply being taught plainly the gospel of God, Romans 1.1. This letter, written to a different group with a very different purpose. This is to the saints in Rome, and Paul is laying out again, gospel implications. Justification, then sanctification. As such, the point of these inspired words in front of you in chapter 8 is not, at least here in these verses, in chapter 8, a call to live rightly. Choose rightly, so to speak. Here in Romans, the foundations of salvation and sanctification, the very rebar, the underpinning, that's what's in view. In other words, if we were to pull the lens back, what Paul is saying is we can't even talk about sanctification if you don't understand contrasting identity. We can't even have that conversation. And look at verse 5 again, and I hope this helps. And let's read it now with verse 6 to put it together. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So here it is. Before you can think rightly, to walk rightly, you need to have the ability, don't you? You need to have the ability, and Paul presents here that the basis for spirit living is spirit identity. This is very simple. In other words, Roman saints, in other words, Westmount saints, here's the point. Thinking rightly can only come by way of the spirit first. There's no other way. Even more, without the spirit, and we could say it this bluntly, out of this text, without the spirit, there's just simply no thinking, period. Certainly not that's right, godly. Yes, church, this is once again about living that flows from one of two ways. And This is the meta-narrative of all of Scripture, is it not? The flesh, the Adamic living, Cain had it, Korah declared it, and Saul hid behind it. You know that kind of living, right? And then there's the spirit living. This is the Christocentric, looking to Messiah, looking to seed living. Moses considered it, and David, of course, was robed in it. This is living that produces thinking. That's the key. This is identity, position that produces thinking. Consider Psalm 1 with me. You know it very well. Listen to verses 1 and 2 again in light of what we're learning here in Romans 8. It says this, Blessed is the man who thinks rightly and then walks rightly. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And in this, but his delight, mind is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Do you see that? Identity, position, and place drives thought every time. Every time, Paul's point then in Romans is this: your living flows from your mindset. Your living flows from your mindset, yes, but even more, and here it is, your mindset flows from your identity. And you see where Paul is going here, how penetrating this is for those that struggle with thoughts, right? This is very penetrating. Let's just pause for a moment to make sure we are clear on the reality, on how this is true, and think about all the craziness that's going on today, contrary to modern perversions, only a cat truly thinks like a cat. Doesn't matter how many high schoolers declare that they're a cat, only a cat thinks like a cat. Now listen, you'd say, but they're thinking it and they're behaving that way. That is a human being trying to think and behave like a cat. Their identity is a human being. Nothing can change that. Nothing as such, same principle here in Romans 8, 5-6. Those who live according to the flesh, here it is, have their minds set on the flesh. And that explains that. That is who they are, and they are not the opposite. This is binary. This is you are either fleshly living because you're of the flesh, or you are spirit living because you're what? Of the spirit. That's Paul's point. Paul's point is identity. Spirit identity. Now, church, we must consider how much more revealing this is than a rally cry. And this is where it gets difficult. We have to stop. If we're mining Romans 8 rightly, and we have to stop because we want this to be a rally to live rightly, then head off to the rest of our Sunday. But it is not that. It's very revealing. In fact, I'd submit to you, it's very penetrating. Again, this is not Romans, choose today which way you will live. Are you going to have a flesh day or a spirit day? This is, listen, if you are living according to the flesh, if you're living that way, then you're not of the Spirit. Do you see that? If you live according to the flesh, you are not of the Spirit. That is the point of the text open in front of you. Plain fact. This is behavior stemming from being. This is practice coming from position. And that is precisely the argument Paul is making here. Those who walk, verse 4, according to the Spirit, set their mind on the Spirit, verse 5. And logically, those of the Spirit are those with life and peace, verse 6. That's the argument. Conversely, if you walk according to the flesh, with mindset on the flesh, then logically you're of the flesh. With the flesh is terminus, by the way, which is death. Now with that said, and before we move on, we need to look at how a mind is set. because We don't want to lose that in what we're learning here. And that's foundational to what Paul is saying here. Again, here, we're helped by knowing that this is not a command to volition or action. This is indicative reality. In other words, this is true and present if this is who you are. Look at verse 5. And look at the word set their minds. You see it a couple times there. In the original, that means this, a mind with an absorbing interest, a complete affection and purpose. This is whole and consuming. Do you see that? A mind set on something then defines the entire manner of one's living. This makes sense, right? If the mind is set on the flesh, if that is the nature, then it will live accordingly. And if the mind is set on the Spirit, if that is the nature, then it will live accordingly. Very, very plain. I think we can get our heads around that. This is plainly a statement in verses 5 to 6 about your true nature and how you're living, the least of which you're thinking, is tied to that. To have a mind set on the Spirit is to have a new mind of Christ, First Corinthians 2.16. And Christian, we know this. Christian, you don't choose that new mind or mindset. You don't choose it, do you? It's given to you. Salvation, you're given it. You don't choose to put it on. It's given to you. And once again, this points to union with Christ and only those in Christ not only have that mind. Romans 8, 6, they have life and peace. That's precisely the same cosmic eschatological peace with God stated in Romans 5, 1. Do you remember this? Another therefore statement. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And to have peace with God is to be what? Not guilty before God. With the freedom to now live, remember, we studied this, live as you ought, with a new nature, a new heart, and a new mind. And only then, we see here, only then, with that new identity, can you live according to the Spirit because the mind, listen, the transformed mind, there it is, the transformed mind, that's the only way, is set on the Spirit. Beloved, listen to me. You can't muster that up. God needs to give it to you. You can't wake up each morning and say, help me think Spirit things, help me that you can't. You either do or you don't. You either do or you don't. That's the reality here. And further confirming that reality is verse 7 and 8. For the mind, look at this, that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, look at it, cannot please God. Here is the reality. Back to verse 7. The mind that is set on the flesh is what? Hostile to God. Beloved, in fact, if we put pieces of this letter together, track rightly, that is the very opposite of what we learned in chapter 5, verse 1, peace with God. Is it not? The opposite of peace is what? Hostility. Further evidence here of what Paul is doing is such this is not a mindset that Christians can just slip in and out of. You know, today I was really hostile with God and I was living, you know, but today I have his favor with him and, you know, I'm going to be back to that tomorrow. That's not what Paul is saying. In fact, Paul, more than saying it's not what they do, he says they cannot. It's an ontological reality, which just simply means it just is. It's not possible to be that way. Now, hold on to that. Hence, the mind that is set on the flesh, we can say this, is an unregenerate mind. The mind that is set on the flesh is an unregenerate mind. It's an Adamic mind out of Adam. The mind that is set on the flesh has no peace with God, because it is hostile to God. This makes perfect sense. Further evidence again here at the end of verse 7 that they do not submit to God's law. Why? Well, they cannot. This is ability. The unregenerate cannot, as we've studied. They can't. It's ability or inability. And Again, this is in concert with everything we've learned in this book. The mind that is set on the flesh is still in the flesh. More on that in a moment. And the mind that is set on the flesh is still in the old nature, in Adam, in sin, in death. And that mindset has no good pulse or affections, period, let alone for God's law, as we've covered. Back in chapter seven, we learned that it is only the true believer, the fearer of Yahweh, that what desires to do what's right. Romans seven eighteen. The true believer that delights in God's law, chapter seven, verse twenty two. God's word says, look at verse 8, that those who are in the flesh, and this will make sense now, cannot please God. They're certainly not desiring or delighting in God's law, that's for sure. And Again, let's be clear, the point is not that if you stray and sin, well, you know, God's not pleased with this day and just have at it tomorrow, let's try to get better next time, that's not the point, point. and I can't press that enough. They're tempted to read Scripture that way. And the point is, look at it, that those in the flesh, that's realm, location, identity, those in the flesh, thus those not in Christ, the unregenerate, the unbelieving, such ones, and we would recognize our many, right? Such ones in the flesh cannot please God, plainly stated in this book. Unbelievers cannot please. Please God I am confident. I am confident. I don't know everyone who's here today. I'm confident some of you are pushing back and saying, "Just wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that my really kind neighbor cannot please God? I understand he's unsaved. Yes, yes, yes. but he lets me borrow things, and he's very kind to me. I just cut my lawn yesterday. He's kind. He cannot please God. And maybe one of you is, are you saying that my loving relative cannot please God? I understand she's unsaved, but she is thoughtful and generous. Certainly that pleases God. Maybe you're saying that. Westmount, I am not telling you that your unsaved neighbor, and I am not saying to you that your relative or friend cannot please God. I'm not telling you that this morning. God is, right? Right? God is. Look at verse 8. What does it say? Those who are in the flesh, what? Cannot please God. God says so, not me. Those who are in the flesh, the unsaved, those not in Christ and devoid of the Spirit, cannot please God. They can't. And that's the final word on them, at least here for now, says Paul. Such ones cannot please God. And unless God is pleased, listen, you cannot enter God's presence after you die. No one that is in displeasure with God can enter his presence when you die. Now that's arresting, isn't it? You need his pleasure when you die. And friends, listen, God morally, ultimately, is not pleased with any of us. Forget my neighbor or my loving relative. He's not pleased with me, or you, or any of us. He is not. He cannot be. And that is really haunting, awful news. But here's the good news. There is one that he is pleased with, right? There is one. Turn to Matthew 3. There is one. One. And you say, who is that one? Who is that one? One. He came two thousand years ago, and one of his first acts of ministry, after being under submission to his family and and growing up perfectly, was this. Let's pick it up in Matthew three thirteen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to. To the Jordan, to John, that's John the Baptist, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you come to me, you can picture that scene. John the Baptist says, you are the one, behold the Lamb of God. You take away the sins of the world. How can I baptize you? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill what? All righteousness. This is fitting. Then he consented and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him. <clears throat> and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, Here it is, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am what? I am well pleased. This is the one. This is the one. The affirmation as he goes before us as an example, as a fulfillment... We've talked about that a lot with Christ and fulfilling the law. But grab this from this text in Matthew 3. As he begins and embarks on a ministry of obedience, right? A ministry of fulfillment. God the Father from heaven, and note with the Spirit descending on him, says, this is my son. And in him I am well pleased. Now back to Romans. Listen, the pleasure of God. When you think about Matthew 3, Put it together with Romans 8. The pleasure of God is found in Christ and only in Christ. The pleasure of God is found only in Jesus Christ. Not in not only what our neighbors do, not in anything I do. There's no pleasure of God found only in Jesus. And as such, pleasing God is only possible in the one with whom God is pleased in. Does that make sense? And consequently, you must be found in Christ to have any of that pleasing, so to speak. It must be in Christ. God can only be pleased with those that are likewise pleased with his Son. How can he be pleased with those that take no pleasure in Jesus? How can he be? Logical reality. God is pleased no other way, says the Bible. No amount of good deeds will ever please God. None. None. It doesn't matter how much one stays out of trouble or acts better than most. If you're not in Christ, listen to me, beloved. Pleasing God is impossible. I cannot say that enough for your good and my own. If you're not in Christ, pleasing God is impossible, says the text. And why? What are we learning here in Romans 8? Because your mind is set where? If you're an unbeliever. On the flesh. Certainly not the Son. On the flesh. Now listen, a word on that, our minds are very revealing, aren't they? It's the haunt of everyone, right, to have their mind thrown up on the screen, right? Our minds are very revealing, aren't they? For all of us, you and me, you and me. And this could be helpful this morning, because let's do this, because the text begs it, what is your mind set on today What absorbs your thinking this week? Is your mind constantly consumed with fleshly things? Things under the sun. Temporary things. Is that your consumption? The temporary? Is your mind set on worthless things? Is your mind set there? I want you to consider that this morning. I want you to hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it. Now, identity is one driver of our sanctification. Paul now turns to another, our second point, spirit guarantee. Let's look at verse 9, spirit guarantee. Let's continue in verse 9. It says this, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. You, or in the original, you all... We would say Roman saints, Christians, that is you, as opposed to those hostile to God. Note the contrast. Here's the contrast. Those hostile to God, I'm turning to you, says Paul. I'm turning from those unable to please God in the flesh, and I'm turning to you, believer, in the Spirit. And again, friends, we're reminded here, you are in right now, all of you in this room are in one of two locations. Your domain and realm is either in the flesh or it's in the Spirit. That's it. There is no middle location. You can't have a foot in spirit and a foot in flesh. That's just not the way it works. There's no getting there. There's no gray area. There's no, I'm one of those fleshly spirit Christians. No. To be in the flesh is to be in Adam completely still. To be in the spirit is to be completely in Christ now. And Paul says Christian You, Christian, are in the Spirit. And then this clarifier, verse 9, and note this. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Stop there. If, in fact. In other words, this is the call. Paul does it so often in the New Testament. The call to examine oneself for a moment. Right? This is the call. He says, wait, I'm tracking through an argument here. Just stop. Hold it for a moment. If, in fact. If, in fact. In other words, before going further, Paul needs to pause and let his readers reflect. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, some key spiritual maintenance thus is called for then. And so we would do well to consider if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, in you. And how do you know? That's a great question, right? Well, how do I know if the Spirit of God dwells in me? Let's apply the text, and we learn from it here. Remember verses 5 to 8. What was the question held in the air, hanging in a cloud just a moment ago? What's on your mind? Is it still in your mind? Do you remember that question, or is it now forgotten? Friend, what is your mind set on? In fact, is your mind even in this passage right now? Are Are you tracking with us right now? Is your mind even set on being here? Do you want to be here today? Is this where your mind is, in this building, in this room, with these saints? Or is your mind set on other things? You've just got a lot going on. You'd say, I'm full, but is it really flesh? Where's your mind? Is your mind set on Christ? And pleasing him? Or is your mind set on what others are thinking? What will they think when I show up on Sunday? I need to say the right things. I need to make sure my flesh behaves the right way. I need the favor, the pleasure, the compliment. Is that where your mind was set this morning on Lord's Day? And I ask you that, Westbound, because remember, what your mind is set on over and over And over again, with every step, of every second, of every minute, of every hour, of every week, of every day, what your mind is set on reveals your location and your identity. And where is your mindset? What absorbs your thinking? In fact, the place of those with a mindset on the flesh is precisely what Paul refers back to at the end of verse 9. And look at it. He says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is bigger than identity, isn't it? This is a possession. This is a possession. But here's the positive, Christian. That's the Spirit's guarantee, right? Possession. You're his possession. The Spirit of Christ is what guarantees that you belong to God. Listen to me. You are His. And remember, to have the spirit of Christ is to have the mind set on Christ. And the mind set on Christ is a mind where Christ is the absorbing object. That is how you know if you belong to God. Your mind's obsession reveals it. I know absolutely what a few of you are thinking. I don't think about Christ 24-7. It doesn't mean that you think about Christ 24-7, does it? It's not what this text means. It means that every thought, no matter how big or how small, is carried out, filtered through, in and through the spirit of Christ. You see that? That's what that means. Christ is your every waiting moment consideration. When you're changing a tire, cooking a stir-fry, coming to church, interacting with others, there's Christ. That's what it means. This is everything, listen beloved, from motives, why you do what you do, to output, what you did. See that? All of it then, according to the Spirit. So let's put this all together. To belong to God, blessed thought, to belong to God is to possess the Spirit of Christ. And to possess the Spirit of Christ is naturally to be in the Spirit. And to close the loop here, to be in the Spirit, is to walk according to the Spirit. Verse 4. It's the full circle argument of Paul here. That is today. That is walking. That is gate and step. But even more, that is, as we see here, this is Spirit guarantee. Your steps are backed by the Spirit, Christian. Your steps are backed by the Spirit. Now, notice here that Paul doesn't close this opening section here in verse 9. He could... But he doesn't. This is where theology matters. Paul, as his custom, does not give us the already without the not yet. First, he will remind us that this is a progression. Look at verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So Good. As we live and await the not yet, you do so, Christian. Look at verse 10. First, a few things in this verse. Number one, with Christ in you. That reality is always the fuel for Christian living, is it not? Colossians 1, verse 27, proclaims that Christ in you, in fact, is what? The hope of glory. It's the Christian's hope of glory is that Christ is in us. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone what? Mature in Christ. That's progress. That's the output, aim of process. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. That's Christ in you. So that's one reality here in this verse. The Spirit of Christ in us. The Holy Spirit in us. That's our daily hope. Two, what have we covered already about our bodies Look at what Paul says, the body is dead because of sin. Yet we carry around, in one figurative sense, like a corpse attached to our body that we carry around every day. A body of death. And we live each day with this body of death. The reality, and we looked at this in chapter 7, it frustrates Christian living. This fueled the cry of 724, remember who... Who, with this wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We talked about that, the flesh remnant that clings close. But then, this, and Paul ends with this in the verse, we live each day in spirit righteousness. This is so, so helpful. The spirit is life because of righteousness. This reality facilitates each daily step. And this is indeed how we must respond to the truth of Romans 8. And it is from there, that's the foundation here in Romans 8 for passages like Galatians 5. Yes, we may live according to our identity. That's the daily already reality for us, beloved, but it's not an aimless walk. Paul adds this, we end in verse 11, look at it with me. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The final of three, if you've been seeing them here in these verses of three successive if statements in verses 9 through 11, they are conditional, yes, but here it is, designed, this is the point of them, they're designed to point to plain realities and guarantees of life in the Spirit. This is Paul's way of showing us the obvious. In other words, if you are a believer, if you're in spirit, then this is going to be true of you. Same way we could say, if it is a bear, you're going to see it hibernate this winter. You see that? It's just plain truth. He's like, if it is that, you will see this. You will see this. So if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, yes, the Holy Spirit, Romans 1 to 4. If the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus, Christian, if that same Holy Spirit dwells in you, and yes, the one dwelling in you, granting union with him, as we saw in Romans 6, 1-5, putting it all together. If that same spirit dwells in you, Christian, and so we're clear this morning, meaning he has come in and regenerated you, Titus 3.5. He has taken up permanent residence in you and sealed you, Ephesians 1.13, Ephesians 4.30 if he has now rewired your mind and set it on the things of the Spirit and of Christ, if that Spirit of Christ dwells in you, then, verse 11, look at it, that same Spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also what? See the guarantee. Will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. You see that? Beloved, I feel... As I've been working through this text this week, I cannot do justice to those words. Sometimes you're just powerless before the word of God. I can't do justice to what you just read. How can I? What can I say in light of such amazing truths? But we try. We have to try, don't we? Listen, if the Spirit raised Christ from the dead, and did he? Yes. And all those that are in Christ will follow him into the resurrection of the dead. Does the Bible teach that? Yes. Then if you are in Christ, following Jesus this morning, listen, your deliverance from your mortal body is sure. Did you grab that? Your deliverance from your mortal body is sure. You will arise again after your earthly death. And it will be in a renewed body. That is not only the Spirit's identity, Westbound, that's the Spirit's guarantee. You know, it would be a disservice to this text, especially in our current day, to leave this passage and those last two verses too quickly with one final thought that's most pressing when we think of our bodies. Once again, we're helped by the voices of old. I love the saints that have gone before us. Who didn't have all the distractions we do, and they thought deeply about the Word of God, right? Let's listen to one from the early 20th century. Handley Mule, a bishop of Durham, Handley Mool, he said this of your body and our body. I quote, wonderful is the deep characteristic of Scripture. Now listen to what he's saying. Of your body, this is a characteristic you see all through Scripture. This is good. It's gospel for the body. You say, I thought gospel was soul. No, he says it's gospel for the body. In Christ, in Christ, the body is seen to be something far different. I like this. From the mere clog or prison or chrysalis of the soul. It is its destined implement. May we not say its mighty wings in prospect for the life of glory. Beloved, you could even hold up your hand. This body. This is very good. In Christ, the body, yes, your body, Christian, is seen to be something far different. Note it. This is exactly what this verse is teaching us. In Christ, our bodies become something more than mere containers or vessels, right? And oh, how we consider them as just mere packaging, as if they're just soul containers that will shed and discard one day, right? In Westmount, the Bible teaches us no such thing. In fact, we will be reminded of this powerfully later in this chapter when we see what true groaning is really attached to later in Romans 8. Our bodies are the very residence of the Holy Spirit now. If you're in Christ in this room today, the Holy Spirit is in you now, indwelling you now in your body. Verses 9 to 11 have said so. So why do we treat our bodies like some earthly disposable packaging? Why do we do that? Sadly, this is our practice. Listen to me. In both life and death, we do this, don't we? We do not say so, of course. We just do so. We ill treat our bodies. Let us count the ways. We mark them up. We beat them up. We burn them up. All that in the course of life and death, with little thought of verses like Romans eight eleven. Don't we? Yet life in Christ, in here today, life in the Spirit. Listen. Let's grab all the gems, remember, is a holistic life. It's the complete life, not just soul praise God, of course for that, but body. Once again, look at 8:11, Christ will give life to your mortal body. Listen, that's not replacement. That's not shedding. Oh, I'm going to get new skin. This is renovation. So yes, you can get attached to that body in that sense because it's going to be renovated in glory. Precious doctrine. And you say, how? Look, through the spirit who dwells in you. You have the engine already that will give life to your mortal bodies. Life in the spirit, beloved, is hope for the body. And your sanctification as you drive toward that day is driven by that truth. So life in Christ is life in the Spirit. And next week, thus, if you've been tracking, you know what's next. It's life in the Father that remains. Life in the Father that remains. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this precious truth. And Lord, it's so hard to communicate this and wrap our heads around it. Lord, I just pray your Spirit does what only your Spirit can do. Give us eyes and minds, hearts, hands, and feet. Father, let us live out these truths of our identity and the guarantee that we have in the Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.